0: My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olat Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech and scientific research. Today, we're joined by Dr. Katie Seaborne, Katie is a postdoctoral researcher at the Ritkin Centre for Advanced Intelligence Project in Tokyo, researching in conversations with robots to prevent dementia in elderly people. Katie also has a PhD in human factors engineering from the University of Toronto and has previously worked as a web designer and developer. Welcome, Katie. So could you just tell us a bit more about your project?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on today. So, the work that we're doing in this lab is very multidisciplinary work. Um, we all come from different backgrounds and working towards the goal of creating a method of preventing dementia, or at least preventable dementia, using conversation facilitation. And right now we're looking at how we can design robots in order to do that and see if it's an effective means. And so, My interest on this team is the human-robot interaction side, in particular, designing robots that are suitable for the elderly people participating in the study. Uh, We're actually working with a a robotics company, a local company called Yukai Engineering, who created the prototype robot for us. And they're engineers, and we kind of had this idea of the design of the robot, and created a prototype, and we've been looking at that prototype and study so far, but we don't really know if it's an effective robot. Basically, it's kind of a gap in our knowledge. And what we know from human factors research, from human-robot interaction, human-computer interaction in general, is that if the computer, if the interface, if the robot isn't well suited to the users, there can be problems. And so we just want to make sure that we are aware of how the elderly people in our study uh, perceive these robots, how they use them, their attitudes towards the robots, in order to ensure that the main factors that we're looking at in terms of dementia prevention aren't affected.
0: For our listeners um, who are trying to visualise these robots, could you describe what they look like?
1: Right. Right. Uh, so, sleepy. Sleepy is probably the best way to describe the robots. Uh, basically, they it's its a humanoid robot uh, with a sleepy expression, a kind of calm or easygoing expression, muted colours, and a kind of happy-looking robot. We were hoping this kind of design would be effective for elderly people in terms of their acceptance of the robot but also particularly in the context of use which is conversation facilitation. So the robot is kind of very strictly managing the conversation that the elder, elderly participants have and sometimes you know people aren't very you know comfortable with being managed in that way And so we wanted to make sure that this was a very kind and gentle robot that would be uh, a kind of acceptable manager in this case.
0: So does it just do conversations or does it have any kind of movements
1: as well? So we have a few different versions of the robot and the most recent version actually doesn't really move the head tilts a bit. The previous version has arms that do move And it kind of directs itself towards the participant that is being asked to speak. Yeah, basically, the robot uses its body to indicate which participant can speak at a certain moment in time. And that's kind of part of the management. So it does talk as well, but it also uses its body movements to reinforce who can speak at a certain time.
0: Cool. So... How, uh, you mentioned that um, you're looking into conversations with these robots and how it can be used to prevent dementia. So how can it be used to prevent dementia?
1: Well, I suppose that's kind of a theory we're putting to the test. So my supervisor, uh, Mihoko Otake Matsuda, uh, who is the principal investigator of this project, came up with this conversation facilitation idea. In English, it's called the co method. And basically, it started out as using photos in order to kind of jog people's memory into uh, kind of gear conversations around photos that the elderly participants take themselves. And the idea is that conversation can activate, if it's designed a certain way and controlled a certain way, might be able to activate certain regions of the brain that can help prevent dementia. And so one one issue, for example, is that uh, elderly people tend to focus on kind of domain knowledge and description and well-remembered events and so on and so forth and struggle more with more recent events. And so we want to try to use the robot to get them to talk about uh, other kinds of memories or other kinds of knowledge that they might have. Hoping that uh, theoretically, anyways, it will have an effect on their d- different cognitive uh, abilities. Right now, we're looking at preventable forms of dementia, and the participants in the study right now don't have dementia, so it's it's pre-dementia uh, participant pools at the, at the at the moment. And I think the idea is to look at certain individuals over time and try to see if uh, taking part in these studies and using this uh, conversation facilitation method can have an impact uh, in some way. So the the co-imagination method is actually a 12-week program. And so it it does take place over a longer period of time. It's not just a one-off study. And that way we can kind of see how things change or how they're the same for individuals that participate over the entire period. It's like you would expect how isolated all people can be as well, or they just, you know, hang out with all people. So they talk about just like past memories rather than what's going on in the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want them to retrieve kind of more recent, uh, but not too recent, so not in the past hour, but. Uh, more recent memories that are relevant to them. And so that's why we get them to take their own photos uh, on another day um, and bring them to to talk about them and also to be asked questions about them. So it's kind of a two-part process. They have to describe the circumstances in the time that they have that's controlled by the robot. And then the other participants can ask them questions and they have to respond. And and then for instance, you were saying about activating some parts of the brain while the participants are doing I don't know the study. Do you actually look at the brain at the same time, or how do you assess that? Um, I don't believe that we've started to do that. A lot of what we're doing is so for instance, the robot is recording the conversations and the question and answer period and the descriptions. Basically, all the verbal information is being transcribed. and and collected by the robot. And then we can take that data and we can look for patterns and we can look at different metrics like did they actually use the allotted time or did they talk too much or talk too little? Um, What tense are they using? Uh, Past, future, present, Are they using a variety of words? Are they reusing the same words over and over? Are they using words that other participants have used? This kind of information. And so right now we're trying to figure out if these are possibly indicators of cognitive decline or cognitive resilience. And that's kind of an ongoing question that we're working on.
0: You did a PhD in human factors engineering um, at the University of Toronto, and uh, you've been you've got a lot of experience working as a web developer and a designer. Um, but before your PhD, you did an undergraduate degree at the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at the Simon Fraser University in Canada. So my first question to you is: what inspired you to go into this area mixing arts and technology?
1: Yeah, so Basically, uh, in my teenage years, I developed a lot of different skills and interests that might be loosely grouped into illustration, programming, and design. And I, I just wanted to go into a program that would let me do all of those things because I felt like most undergraduate programs really placed you in a silo where you had to make a decision about what to major in and I didn't want to do that and so I was just searching for another way and I, I happened to prawn this program SEAT which allowed me you, you do have to choose a major but you can also be multidisciplinary and take courses in fact yeah you are, are very much encouraged to take courses in other areas and so that's why I chose that program at the time.
0: Cool, excellent. So, what, when you were growing up as a teenager, um, were you both uh, doing illustrations and artwork, or yeah. were you also interested in the technology side? So, did you? Is that when you started to learn to code, or did you code a bit later?
1: I was basically interested in everything, and probably design came last, and illustration came first. So my grandmother was a professional painter, and she started teaching me uh, acrylics and watercolor and oil painting when I was, I don't know, probably around eight or something like that. And then at about, I don't know, a few years later when I was going into middle school, uh, Adobe Photoshop came around, and I had a friend whose older brother happened to get a copy and just basically gave me the copy and said, you you like art, right? So why don't you try this? It's a digital art program. I didn't know what to make of it, but I basically started doing a combination of traditional arts and digital arts, so kind of mixed media, scanning things onto the computer and then Kind of expanding on, you know, acrylic or or colored pencil work using uh, Photoshop's various tools and filters, and then I kind of just moved almost directly into digital illustration. At a certain point, I, I don't really, I can't really explain why. I just enjoyed it better. <laughs> Maybe it's easier to make mistakes and correct them uh, in, in a digital software situation. And then I. Really got into kind of digital art online, and I saw a lot of people posting their art online. And this was before there was really uh, an easy way to do that. There wasn't really social media. I think LiveJournal was around at the time, but you basically had to make your own website. And so I, in a way, I was kind of, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to get my art online, I needed to learn how to code a website. And then I realized, well, it's just another creative arena for me because not only do you have to code the back end, but you have to to think about the web design on the front end. And that could also be kind of an art project. And so I started to experiment with, Uh, what could websites look like if we didn't think about them as uh, information or just information, but as an artistic playground? And then so I wanted to do a lot of interactive things. I was really into gaming. And I thought, well, can't there be an interactive experience on a website as well? And so I started learning, I think it was called DHTML, (laughs) Dynamic HTML, but basically early JavaScript in order to create very basic user interactions and reactions. And it just kind of went from there. And so somehow, yeah, getting into digital art, uh, moving from more traditional illustration into digital art, and then moving into web design to get my work out there, um, it just kept going from there. And then I got really interested in the coding side. I found it really challenging, and I really love to have a challenge. And uh, put my mind to work and solve problems. So, is that actually how you, how
0: did you get into coding? Was it the first time?
1: Yeah, so I think I might have, uh, I can't remember what came first, if I had to make a website for a class or if I did it on my own. But what really pushed me into coding was wanting to get my digital art online. And I was inspired by what other digital artists were doing with their websites. And I, at the time, I think the best resource, I don't know if it still exists, WebMonkey. It had like online tutorials that kind of taught you the basics of programming online. I guess a lot of it was just scripting, but uh, it was the fundamentals for doing anything online in terms of coding. And then I just kept thinking of new things that I wanted to do online and then I had to learn new things and it just kept going from there
0: When you were um getting into coding and creating these websites were actually just out of interest what what year was that kind of how old were you when you were starting to learn code 19, uh, 1997
1: or nineteen ninety eight
0: Okay, that's really interesting because that, in a way, is so timely. Because I remember when I was growing up when I was very young, Mm -hmm. that websites have changed so much. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, they were like full of colors, some gears. Yeah, you know what? I miss those
1: days. I don't know. I kind of love the uh, mid to late '90s website aesthetic, even though it's kind of garish, but (laughs) it's at the same time really nostalgic, and it's kind of a special aesthetic that you know, I don't think we're going to see again.
0: (laughs) You did your undergraduate degree um, at School of Interactive Arts and Technology, and then you did a PhD in human factors engineering. So could you just describe what human factors engineering is and what your project was?
1: Right. So uh, human factors engineering, which is also called ergonomics, they have a slightly different history, but basically they're the same discipline is the study of how people fit with technologies, systems, and products. And so it's really about what people can do and what they can't do, and how we interact with the world, and then how to design systems or interfaces or technologies or products or objects and so on to meet the needs of people. For me, I focused on computer technology. And so my thesis, my PhD thesis, was on very particular setup, uh, mixed reality gaming for elderly people who rely on power mobility, such as electric wheelchairs and uh, mobility scooters.
0: So what kind of applications did you make?
1: I started out by creating the game. I wanted to make sure that the game was enjoyable and that it was usable, uh, particularly given the fact that I was working with uh, elderly people who had different mobility limitations. And so uh, often uh, people who develop mobility impairments later on in life um, also have other impairments that they're dealing with. I guess it's called comorbidity. And so we have to take that into account, even if we're focusing on a mobility application. And so I I created the kind of 2D game using a combination of Node.js and uh, HTML5 Canvas and uh, different uh, JavaScript UI libraries like jQuery. And I tested it with elderly people, got their feedback, made some corrections. And then I took that game and made this mixed reality platform kind of a room-sized gaming experience where two people had to use electric wheelchairs in order to play the game to move around in that space and navigate that space in order to complete the objectives of the game.
0: Excellent and so when you finished your PhD was it a well-received game and did you is it out now into into the public?
1: Yeah I would have loved to do that but It was such a particular situation that... Uh, in the end, we didn't see how we could make it uh, commercially viable or uh, even install it in community centers uh, because of just the technology requirements and the space requirements. So when you're working with mobility and you're going out into the world, the space, the environment, the existing environment really matters quite a lot. And it can be very difficult to to find that kind of space um, in order to set up an experience like this uh, for a longer period of time. But there was a lot of interest in the game especially because elderly powered cherry users don't really have any kind of experiences or entertainment that's geared for them and so it was very exciting for the participants to have a kind of tailor-made game just for them Um, another side is that it was a two-player game and one of the players had to be an elderly person who relies on power mobility and the other player had to be a younger person who does not have a mobility impairment and uh, likely did not ever even try using an electric wheelchair. And so we created a situation where in the game there was a kind of role reversal that took place where the elderly person who tends to be taken care of uh, had to actually take care of the younger person and help them out. And they were the kind of expert of using powered chairs and for the younger people this made them realize like how difficult it is to be in the world in a in a in a an electric wheelchair or a mobility scooter um, how difficult it is to use and that there is expertise involved and it kind of changed their minds about power mobility and in some cases even changed their behavior when they went back out into the world they were looking for people using powered chairs and seeing how they managed the built environment and uh just were primed to uh, consider uh, people in these circumstances a little bit more than they did before. Wow, that's
0: like incredible incredible for a powerful engagement yeah. um, to society. Mm-hmm. But I think that's like an amazing example of how that could change people's attitudes.
1: The reason that I narrowed in on this idea was by asking older people who relied on power mobility What did they want and what did they need? So a lot of the work in this area is really focused on rehabilitation or on sort of the technology, especially the design of the chairs. And not so much as focused on sort of the psychosocial factors that are the lived experience, the daily lives of these people. And what they told me was that They were tired of basic training that they had to do, and they really wanted to be put to the test in their chairs, almost like an obstacle course. And on the other side, they were really frustrated because they were frequently encountering people who didn't seem to understand what they were going through. And they just wanted people to be a little bit more understanding and have a little bit more empathy for their situation. And so I took those ideas, and I thought, well, what... what, can I create a situation with mixed reality so it's a bit safer than actually using uh, physical obstacle uh, course materials, for instance? And can I, can I make it fun and playful so it's still a game? It's not too serious, but it still creates a situation where we can explore these ideas and potentially provide a beneficial experience. And so that's, that's, that's basically where it came from.
0: So, after your PhD, um, you moved to University College London as a postdoc. So, did you continue your research from your PhD or did you start working on something else?
1: I started a new project. So, I was in the Intel funded Smart Cities project. And basically, we were trying to figure out how to use technology to make a, a positive impact. And in particular, if we could make city smarter in some way by embedding technology and uh, facilitating uh, and, and different pro-social uh, ends using technology. And so my project was on food-based recycling. And for that, I created uh, with a master student, a basically character bin, a monster bin, which encouraged people to recycle their food waste and use, use the green bin rather than the general waste bin by calling out to them and reacting to them when they were in the uh, bin waste room of, uh, of the flats. So we installed this in a block of flats.
0: So what happened when the individual put the food in the non-food non bin? Did the monster growl?
1: Um, when the monster bin was ignored, it kind of cried. (laughs) So it didn't, it didn't get mad. It didn't get mad at people. We felt that might be too harsh, I guess, but it it was kind of upset. So it was really trying to draw you in with sympathy and by being cute and in a way kind of focusing on the positive. So if you fed it, we transformed the head of uh, the top of the bin into um, a monster head And so when you use the bin, you were kind of feeding the monster. And so we based the kind of interaction design around this idea of feeding the monster. So if you ignored the monster, the monster was sad because it didn't get to to eat and it cried. And then if you did feed the monster, then it gobbled it up and made nice chewing sounds and uh, very satisfied little growls and uh, blinked its eyes showing that it was very happy with this interaction that it had with you. And uh, yeah, we put it into a a building of flats and we basically left it there for several months. We worked with um, the local borough and also the food waste company to assess whether there was a difference in the usage of the bins, so basically weighing the bins and seeing if there was a change over time. Because food waste is, is quite heavy compared to most other waste, and we could also measure the levels, so the amount of waste in each of the bins. And we found that, um, I believe it was over uh, a couple months period, that people were using the bin. So you're always afraid that there's going to be a kind of novelty effect where, you know, maybe in the first day people are very excited by this novel technology and then maybe they lose interest. But actually people continued to use the bin and continued. There was a bit of a drop off, but they continued to use the food waste bin for much for a much longer period.
0: Excellent. That's so cute. I wish I had a bin like that at my estate. I would definitely use my food waste bin more we only just recently got a food waste bin that's a good reminder to put my food waste in the food bin when I go home
1: it's not an easy habit to get into there's so much going against it so it's really understandable so it was really a question of like how can we help people to basically handle their food waste and kind of if we can't make it fun um, at least make it a little bit more pleasurable in some way
0: After working as a postdoc in UCL, you moved to
1: Tokyo. What attracted you to move there? So uh, about almost five years ago now, I did the JSPS Summer Program, which is a three-month program for PhD students. Might be master's students now, but at the time it was PhD students, where you could do a part of your PhD work at a select institute in Japan. And so I elected to go to AIST in Tsukuba, which is very close to Tokyo. And so I took advantage of my situation and went to Tokyo and totally fell in love with the city and decided that I had to come back. One of my central research interests is how to support the aging society, uh, especially with technology. And really, Japan is one of the best places to do this kind of work, um, because it's already a super-aged society, and there's a lot of pressures and desire for innovation, particularly with technology, in order to better support the aging population and uh, support elderly people in their daily lives. And so, yeah, for these reasons, I decided to come back to Tokyo, and I, I basically applied to for the postdoctoral fellowship that's provided by the JSPS. And that's the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Although if you Google JSPS, you can find it easily as well. And they provide a lot of, you know, short term and long term research opportunities for people at different stages in their careers, but especially foreign students and researchers. And so I applied and I received the postdoc and I decided to come here.
0: So final bit, final question that we always ask our, our guests. So what advice would you give to women or those underrepresented in technology to go into computer science or technology?
1: You have to be open and you have to be positive and you have to not be discouraged if you experience rejection or failure. Everyone does. Um, It's best to learn from it if you can and keep going. Uh, Reach out to people, join communities, find your support networks and uh, take care of yourself. And that's part of that is protecting yourself, not letting yourself being taken advantage of. Uh, So be careful about who you give your ideas to, for instance, and also selling yourself, uh, especially women are socialized to not do that. And so we kind of have to push ourselves a little bit to own our work. And unfortunately, it, it, the onus is on us a lot of the times to do that. But, you know, find find mentors, find supporters, find role models, and uh, don't give up. Figure out what you have to do, and then just do it, and keep doing it until it works. And if you stop loving it, then you can stop doing it and you can find something else. But as long as you love it and as long as you're determined, as long as you have a vision of yourself working in an area or doing some kind of profession, then don't give up.
0: You are listening to the Researcher's Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever podcasting platform you use. Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.